Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Anita Dake. She's a blogger at thepowerofthrift.com. She's also the author of a book, Operation Enough, about her approach to financial independence. She reached retirement and financial independence at the early age of 33. She graduated with a law degree in 2009 from the University of Chicago. She had a starting salary of 160K. Instead of using that income to live an expensive, luxurious lifestyle, she used it to achieve financial independence very young. She has a unique philosophy towards money that I think is best summed up by her quote, the most valuable thing about money is that it can buy freedom from worrying about money. So welcome to the podcast, Anita. Thanks so much for the great introduction. It was very thorough. Uh, How did you first get this idea to pursue financial independence? I was pretty young. I wouldn't say I was like 17, 18 years old. And I first read the book, Your Money or Your Life by Vicki Robbins and Joe Dominguez. And I was like, okay, I definitely want to retire early. So I put that on my life bucket list that I had started when I was a tween. And then I kind of forgot about it for a few years. And then I went back to law school. And then I learned how much our starting salary was, which just said 160000 And I was like, well, if I'm making four times more than the average person, couldn't I retire four times earlier than them? And I remember that book that I read. And so I reread it. And then I started my retirement chart. And then everything just kind of went from there. Nice. So... I saw that you wrote about that in the book where you went to one of your fellow law students and you made that comment, like, why can't we retire four times earlier? And Yeah, absolutely. They rejected that. So what's the pushback you get from other, was the main argument you got from other lawyers against that? Um, I think it was just the golden handcuff argument that, you know, you're going to want to want nicer things. You're going to want, you know, to be in the rat race and to be up with your peers. And if you're going to the University of Chicago and you're you're going to stop working after a few years, that doesn't make any sense to a lot of people. And it certainly didn't to my friend. Yeah, but I mean, it's just funny because rather than use that as a cautionary tale saying like, I don't want golden handcuffs, they're like, well, it's inevitable. I'm just going to yeah, do that. Exactly. <laughs> I think you can relate because you're in, you're in the finance world, but people work very hard to get there. And then I think they don't really want to stop working. And I mean, I think that's just the fundamental disconnect. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it seems like it's a, an endless treadmill and it doesn't make you really happy. Like as you start moving up and you start acquiring more toys and bigger houses and it doesn't really fulfill anything like it's supposed to. Yeah. My friend once told me it's a pie eating contest where the prize is more pie. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. So when you graduated from law school, you already had this goal. How much did you graduate with? I had about $120,000 in law school debt and undergraduate debt. But a lot, some of it, like maybe 15000 of it was to my sister since she was charging me 0% interest. So, but the rest of it was like 100000 105000 something like that was, um, you know, just normal loans. So I say about 100000 And how long did it take you to pay that off? So I graduated in 2009, and then that was when the year the world was kind of collapsing. Bear Stearns, you know, broke apart and all that stuff. Yeah, it was terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So I had a year off, 
I worked for Scan and Arps and they gave me a year off. They gave me $77,000 to basically do whatever I wanted for a year. So I put some of that toward my student loans, but most of that was spent traveling the world. And so I started working in October, 2010, and I made my last loan payment on October, 2011. That's amazing. So what were the strategies used to pay that off so early? So I just used the normal, like highest interest rate strategy, just the math, the one that made the most mathematical sense. The debt avalanche. Not a slave to math because my last loans were like 2% interest and I paid those off as soon as I could, just because I did not want to have any student loans, even though I knew mathematically it didn't make any sense to do that. Nice. And I know you graduated and you decided to take on the job in Chicago versus a job in New York or somewhere like that. How much did the location factor into the ability to pay that off early? 100%, honestly. I interviewed all over and I you know, got offers everywhere, but I just chose Chicago because I could get a really nice apartment I was really cheap with a roommate and I was in it close to my family and all that stuff. But most of it was just the cost of living compared to other cities was really good. And I didn't want to live in Texas. I know Texas had no income taxes, but I, I couldn't couldn't do that one. Yeah. And probably not as many like big law jobs as, as yeah, you were able to exactly. find. Yeah, definitely. So what were some of like the lifestyle hacks you used to rein in your spending and and be able to do that so quickly? So it really helped that I had a, I made a lot of money. So that worked worked in my favor, obviously. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. very hard to like, I think, save hack your way into early retirement unless because it's going to take a lot longer. But for me personally, I worked a lot of hours, so I didn't really have much of a life that first year. So my law firm would pay for my dinner if I was there past eight, which I was many nights. They'd pay for my cab ride home. So I'd bring my breakfast and lunch to work every day. I had a roommate, you know, so I paid like $750 for a two bedroom apartment with my roommate. I didn't really go on vacation that first year. I really just lived like a college student that first year, even though I was making $160,000. I did, I, all my clothes were hand-me-downs for my sisters or thrifted. I just didn't really shop very much. Gotcha. And how do you resist the kind of the pull of lifestyle inflation? So you're in Chicago, you're making all this money. Was there a temptation to start going to fancy restaurants and doing things like that? I've always been a simple person. So it's not really been something that I strive for is like material things. I've always wanted my freedom. I love sleeping in. I lo- I, like, I did not enjoy being a corporate lawyer. It just was a lot of hours. It was a lot of stress. And I just, it was not my life for me. It was not, not something that appealed to me at all. So I wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. So every time I like thought about buying something like a fancy dinner or a new dress, I'd be like, well, that's set me back farther from my goals. And I don't know how much I would actually appreciate the fancy dress or the new dinner or, or fancy dinner or new dress. Yeah. And if you didn't like it at that point in your career, you probably would have, it was just going to get worse yeah, <laughs> as you exactly. advanced. Yeah. I mean, I just, I saw all these partners and all these senior associates, like working on Christmas, working on Thanksgiving, just working through all the holidays and like work always came first. So work came before sleep, work came before friends, work came before dating. It just, I felt like I was a second fiddle in my life. Yeah. That sounds pretty horrible. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people out there can relate. Yeah. So I know that when you paid off your debt, you emptied your emergency fund. So how scary was it when you did that? I mean, it was like a week, maybe, you know what I mean? I got <laughs> still, paid, still. I got paid like a week and a half later, so it wasn't that scary. 
I knew like if I really needed something, if like I have family I could turn to and I was, like I said, I was getting paid so quickly and I was, you know, still getting the paycheck and all that. So it wasn't scary. It was just so relieving. Gotcha. So with the um, approach that you took towards paying off debt in a year, what advice would you have to someone who is struggling with debt or trying to get out of debt? There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Take it slowly. I did. I had like eight loans and I had this spreadsheet that I looked at every single day and I would calculate the interest every single day about how much less I was paying if I gave my next paycheck to that and like how much I, every it was such a game to me it was like it was a fun game it's like it's a very clear goal and it's a very kind of like target that you can hit without too much philosophical stuff you know what i mean like when you're retired and you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life i think that's a harder part than actually like saving and paying down debt because that's a very clear goal that makes sense gotcha yeah no that makes a ton of sense so i know that you're an index investor. So how'd you arrive at indexing as your preferred investing style? Um, so in October, 2010, I finished paying off my loans and then I spent an entire year reading every book I could. So I think the most the books that I that had the most impact on me was The Random Walk Down Wall Street, The Bogleheads Guide to Investing and JL Collins' blog series. And he wrote later wrote a book, A Simple Path to Wealth. And that's kind of where I... I got on the index trade investing. It just it was the one that made the most sense to me and it was the most passive for to me because I don't actually enjoy working. So I really like the passive part of it. But it's, I mean, everything else, like I have a lot of friends who do side hustles and everything else just seemed like work and I didn't want to work anymore. I wanted to do my hobbies and I, you know what I mean? So. Gotcha. And now that you're further along in retirement, are you considering maybe, so you're hundred percent US equities, right? Um, you know, I have like a tiny percentage, like maybe 1% or something in bonds. And then I have a few REIT index funds. Just This is like when I was kind of experimenting before I before I um, fully committed to index funds. But it's like the first two paychecks maybe I put into it. And then I was like, eh, I think I like index funds better. So I stopped and I just like left it there. And it's kind of it's sitting there doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, VTSAX, right? That's, right. that's yeah. the index fund that you use. So for that specific index fund, what is the appeal of that specific index fund? It's uh, Vanguard, which I really appreciate because Vanguard makes you a stockholder or a shareholder when, you're, when you buy into it, as opposed to Fidelity, which, whereas you're just a customer of Fidelity. And I also really like Jack Bogle's philosophy. He's the one who started index fund investing and he's the one who started Vanguard basically. And he, the Bogleheads Guide to Investing is about his strategy. It's just very low fees. It's I can't remember exactly the amount right now. It's like 0.05 or something percent right now. Basically free. And it's just a 0.3. Yeah, something like that. But it's very, very cheap. And it's like one of the best you can get out there. I know that like... There are a couple of them that have slightly lower index, like Charles Schwab might have slightly lower, but I just really like Vanguard. I think it's just a, be a silly loyalty thing, but I've never been too impressed with Fidelity. Well, they do have, do you really, are, are you attracted to that mutual structure where part owner in the company? Yeah. And I just, I think a little bit of loyalty because I've always used Vanguard and I've always used Jack Bogle's philosophy. So I think I just kind of like, feel like I owe him a little bit, even that's a little bit silly. I know, you know, some of us, everyone has like a little, these little superstitions. So I think that's probably one of mine. No, I gotcha. Yeah. I mean, Jack Bogle, he changed the world. I mean, when you think about 
the world that he inherited and uh, what he left behind. I mean, back in the 70s, I think the average mutual fund sales load was like 9% or something like that. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, everything we've seen is really a result of of his incredible efforts, I think. Yeah, I'm glad you agree. Yeah, well, it's amazing to me too, because he could have probably done something you know, more Wall Streety and made more money, but he was on this mission to help everyday investors. Like, I'm going to reduce fees and I'm going to create a vehicle so people can save their money much more intelligently. Absolutely. It's something to really admire about him. Yeah. So now, so now that you're further along in retirement, have you ever considered adding more bonds to the portfolio to kind of reduce the volatility? Um, I haven't. I maybe in another 10 years I'll consider it, but I'm still so young. I feel like I'm 41. So I still feel like I have a lot of time in the market where I have to worry about it. And you know, if something catastrophic happens, I'd probably go back to work before I dug into it if it was too low, if that makes sense. No, that makes a ton of sense. So you are so you've been investing for a long time now. You see the big moves in your portfolio every day. A lot of people for a lot of people that's hard to handle. So a 10% move on a million dollar portfolio is a hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot for a lot of people to absorb. So how do you deal with that volatility? How do you how do you cope with that mentally? So it was it's been a hard couple of years, I'm not gonna lie, but I just don't look at it. <laughs> I kind of bury my head in the That's sand. That's a good approach. <laughs> down. Like I, it's like a couple hundred thousand dollars. It's not, I still have a ton of money and it's not, it's, you know, it's all fake money. It's not real until I cash it out. So it doesn't really feel like my money. And so when it goes down, it's like, well, it's all kind of play anyway. And then when it goes up, it's like, oh, that's fantastic. So I, I only look at it when I know it's up. So I looked at it last night for the first time and like, months and I'm fine. I don't, it doesn't worry me at all. That's amazing that you can wait months without looking at it. I look at it every day. I definitely (laughs) used to be that like that, but the more I've retired, the more I'm realizing that works. And like, I, I'm a very low spender compared to like what I'm allowed to quote unquote. So it's just, I don't know. I have a very big cushion. It doesn't really worry me. Gotcha. So one thing that you talk a lot about on your blog is your um, your chart. So you have the chart of your projected passive income versus your expenses. So could you talk a little bit um, about that chart? Yeah, this is something I got from you on your life. And I think it's extremely helpful in kind of tracking your spending and knowing how much you'll actually be using in life as opposed to these vague, vague numbers. So the income is self-explanatory. You put the income there and then your expenses is just all of your expense. You add up all your expenses and then stick that number on the chart. And so obviously your income should be more than your expenses. And the bigger that gap on the chart, the more money you have to invest. So I did that for a few years. And then after I quit my job, um, I got rid of the expenses li- or income line because I didn't really have any. And then I, I started the projected passive income line. I did that obviously way before, but this is kind of like, how much can I spend in retirement? Projected passive income is just a formula from the book. It's the 4% rule, which I'm sure everyone is aware of listening to the podcast. I'm sure your audience is very sophisticated. So yeah, the, the as soon as the red line and the green line, the projected passive income and the expenses line pass each other, then you're retired. So it's a really good visual data point of like how much you need and how far you are from it. 
Yeah. How often would you go in and update that chart? Uh, when I was retired or when I was working, I would do it every, I looked at it every single day. You know, wow. insane. <laughs> but now that I'm retired, I look at it like maybe once a year, you know, when I have to update my chart for, uh, for the blog. So when you were updating that chart and then you reached the point where your the 4% of your portfolio exceeded your expenses, like did you immediately retire or did you work a little bit longer to get that get a bit of a buffer there? So I, I when I retired, I was on a secondment in Sydney, Australia. And Sydney is a super expensive place to live. So my charts were a little bit out of whack for a couple of years when I lived in Sydney, just because I was definitely still spending more or less than I earned but the gap was a lot smaller. And I knew that the expenses line was kind of not correct just because I was paying so much in rent in Sydney. And I, when I retired, I knew I wouldn't be doing that. So I had a number that I playing with when I was living in Chicago. Like I knew this is how much would be enough for me to live on in Chicago. So I had that number in my head and then I passed it when I lived in Sydney, but I wasn't, the numbers on the chart weren't passing each other because of the like, rent in Sydney. So I waited a little bit longer until my secondment was done. And then that just kind of seemed like a natural end to like, you know, I could have gone back to the Chicago office, but I really didn't want to start working again. So I just it felt, felt like a natural end. So that's when I quit. Yeah, I don't blame you. Plus, you probably got a taste of uh, freedom in Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. So I know that you're a minimalist. So how'd you arrive at that philosophy? It sounds like you were there before it was cool. how'd you land on that philosophy? I think it's just my personality. I've just always been kind of simple. Like I don't need much. I'm happy with books and writing and walking. And, you know, my big expense is traveling. I think that's it and experiences. So it just never appealed to me. I wish I had more insight into that because people ask me that all the time. It's like, oh, how do I stop spending money? It's like, I don't know. I never was tempted to spend money. It's hard to relate. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fascinating. I'm like a reformed spendthrift. <laughs> but when I was younger, I definitely was more about the let's spend money, let's have a good time. And now I've kind of landed on a similar philosophy. So nice. yeah, I, I think you really just need to see kind of the impact of both. Like you need to see that that doesn't, I, I think for most people who aren't naturally wired that way, they kind of have to see where that ultimately leads to, which is nowhere that you're spending money that isn't making you happy. I think it really depends on how you grew up too. Like if you, my parents were very thrifty growing up. So I understood the value of a dollar and I understood everything cost. Whereas I know some people grow up never talking about money and I imagine that would be hard. Yeah, definitely. And do you think that that helps, that that minimalist philosophy has helped you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think stuff is the epitome of just junk. You know, it's just, it's, it's society telling you what you need to be happy, but it's not going to make you happy. Yeah. hundred percent. So what's your approach to health insurance? So while you were working, you were getting health insurance, I assume through the law firm. How did that factor into your plan and your expenses? Um, so the first couple of years, I just paid whatever on the marketplace. I think it was like $200 a month, which is, you know, not terrible. And then when I moved, 
officially to Colorado, I was talking to someone on the exchange and I was just giving them all of my information, you know, my net worth, my income every month that I take out for my stocks and stuff. And so this is the um, Affordable Care Act. Correct. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so I was talking to someone with the state of Colorado and they were like, oh, you can get on Medicaid. So I did that for a couple of years, but I'm back on the exchange now. And it, you know, my income is low enough that the premiums are nothing. So it's just, it's all subsidized. And so it's all more toward about your income and they're not looking into your assets or anything. Correct. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So that's... Yeah, I was surprised too. Like, I, I don't think it's the same in every state, but it, that's how it is in Colorado. If you don't mind my asking, how much is it? It's nothing. I don't pay anything for it. Oh, it's free. Yeah, it's all subsidized. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Okay. So that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, because that's always the thing you hear about people who retire early. It's like, well, you got to think about health insurance and healthcare costs. I think you have to care, think about it if you have a family or mm -hmm. you're fat fire. If you take out a lot of money every year, whereas I take out maybe $18,000 every year or something like that. So my income is so low because, you know, obviously my income's not the whole $18,000. It's only like the gains on that money that I put in. You know what, you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Yeah. It's so it's low amount that on paper, I look like I, you know, on paper, it's very low. Gotcha. So you're taking out like 18 grand a year. And then on that, you're only paying like the capital gains that you've experienced on that. Right. Gotcha. Okay. That's cool. So how do you, like, what's your strategy towards living on $18,000 a year? So I buy everything I want. I just don't want that much. I say that all the time. I just, I don't know. I have a very low threshold for necessities, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that that's great. So yeah, I know in, in the book, you've talked a lot about the differences between needs and wants. So how do you think about that? What, like, what would you classify as a need and what would you classify as a want? Uh, so needs are security, anything to get your uh, good roof over your head, food on the table, and necessity is pretty much everything else. If you don't need it to survive, it's not a necessity, which is, you know, not the right attitude to have maybe in the very beginning of like when you're trying to like prune everything down, you have to like kind of decide what's important to you and what's not. And I think that's the hardest part of just life in general is to figure out the noise in this through what makes you happy. Yeah. And I think most Americans have a pretty broad view of what needs are, <laughs> so, Yeah, <laughs> you know, like. Uh, leather interior is a need. Like I'm sure people have crazy definitions of what, what a need is. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you, I think when you scale it back and you really think about it, it's like, well, what, what do I actually need? Like it's, it's pretty, it's pretty simple. Yeah, absolutely. I like this quote of yours. The less you need, the sooner you will feel rich. So yeah. Could you elaborate on that a little bit. Um, so I guess rich is not a precise number. It's just a feeling. So if you have enough to cover everything you want, then you'll feel rich. And the sooner you have enough, enough, the sooner you feel rich. So I just think that less you need, just less you need to get shackled through life. It's so appealing to me. Yeah, definitely. So what is the importance of wiggle room? That was another thing you, you talked about in the book a lot. So this is fun because I haven't read my book in years. So <laughs> all these concepts in a while. So it's really fun to go over them again. 
So when I was estimating, when I was a lawyer, I would never make budgets and stuff like that. I'd always overestimate my in- expenses and underestimate my income just to give myself a little bit of like flexibility. And even now, like I use a 4% rule and I see how much I'm allowed to quote unquote take out every year. And I usually take out much less than one that. So it's very, it gives you a lot of cushion. So even if you don't know what's going to happen in the world, you know, just the fact that you are adaptable gives you a lot of advantage. Definitely. And you're also big on operations like you've had. (laughs) Like you set up these goals and then you say like it's an operation. So what's an operation and how does that help you achieve your goals? So a goal that isn't written down or just is it just a wish? So when I say operation, I mean, how am I going to implement this goal? And I write it down. And I think there's something very powerful about writing stuff down. So if I write down like, For instance, my book is Operation Enough. That was my project for retiring early. I wanted to have enough money to be free. So, you know, that entails that you you break up the operation into different sub-operations and you figure out what you need to do, like what books you need to read, who you need to talk to, what supplies you need, and you write it all down. And then you slowly go through the list and check everything off and in my opinion, it's one of life's great joys. It's the purpose of life is just to kind of get through these accomplishments and goals and do what you want to do. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, you've also put that into a bucket list on your website and you've crossed a lot of items off on there. So among that bucket list, what's the thing you're proudest of crossing off? Uh, Right now I'm working on learning to swim. So (laughs) it seems impossible, but I just the other day I jumped into ten feet of water, which was a very like a goal that I didn't think I would. Awesome! Make. Congratulations! <laughs> Terrifying, but I'm slowly but surely learning. I have eight things on my sub bucket list, and I've got four of those done. And it's been really, really hard because I've been really afraid of the water for so long. But it's it's so refreshing to like tackle something that you thought was impossible. It like really takes off the plaque in the brain cells and makes you feel alive again. Awesome. And what are like, what are some of the, what's the next thing you're going to try to cross off? Um, So scuba diving is one of my life bucket list items and I'm terrified of that, but I'm taking lessons right now. I've already paid for the first session and I wasn't able to finish everything because I got a little afraid. So I've already paid for the next sessions to like (laughs) get the makeup course done. So I'm going to do scuba and hopefully fingers crossed, I'll be able to cross that one off in March when we go to the Maldives. I'm also working on learning to sew because I've been taking lessons of that for a while now. I'm making a dress right now. And what else am I working on? I'm looking at learning Spanish, doing Duolingo. Yeah, it's a lot of, I'm trying not to do everything at once because I want stuff for when I'm later and later in life, but a lot of fun things going on right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm following it. I see all the things you're always crossing off. It's It's inspiring. Oh, thanks. It's really fun. It's like one of my favorite things to do is cross off a life bucket list items. It feels very accomplishing. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things I was curious about, so what kind of pushback did you get from your family about pursuing early retirement? You know, you're generally, your family is always pushing you saying, hey, advance in your career. That's the secret to everything. And yeah. Yeah. So how'd that go? super, Super supportive. I would call them in the morning and be like, yeah, I haven't slept in the last, you know, 26 hours. And my mom would be like, oh, you shouldn't, you know, you should get another job or whatever. And I explained to them, explained to her my 
from my path and, you know, she's seen my charts and I've talked about it for years. So it's like, she knew what was going on and she was super supportive. Like she, she knew, and she was my biggest cheerleader. Awesome. And my family was great. I mean, not just my mom. It was, it was like, I think they thought it was a little bit strange, but not, not out of fear for me. Gotcha. And, um, so something else I'm curious about. So if you could go back in time and talk to yourself, like right before you were about to retire, what would you tell yourself about early retirement? Like what did you see coming at the time? That's a hard one because it depends on the day. There are definitely some days where I'm like, I wish I had worked one more year. Then I don't know. I don't know why those days come. It's kind of like a, like I look at other, what other people have and the comparison is the thief of joy. Right. So yeah, over on Facebook and I see that all my, you know, former law school classmates are like doing these great things and like, Oh, maybe I should have worked a little bit longer. But honestly, most of the time, nine times, nine days out of 10, it's fantastic. And I love my life. And I would just tell her that it's going to be worth it, that <laughs> the, the sacrifice and all the, the long hours and all that will pay off. Gotcha. And um, is there anything about early retirement that didn't match your expectations? Um, it can get a little bit lonely at first, especially during the pandemic when I was single and I didn't have a job and it was it was very hard to like get people to interact in that at that time period. So it was a lot of Zoom calls and phone calls to my family and friends, but it can be a little isolating if you don't have a job. Gotcha. And well, uh, you're you're in Colorado, right? Right. Isn't there isn't that like the Mr. Money Mustache community? Aren't they all out there? So is it yeah, easy to find like minded people out there? Yeah, it's a little bit further out though. So I do definitely have some retired friends and I'm very lucky and thankful to have them. And my uh, my boyfriend also he you know has spent we spent a lot of time together. So I, it doesn't it's not as isolating. That's good. Yes, it's definitely important to not be totally socially isolated. I think that's yeah. kind of a key aspect of. But I think enjoying... there is a very big community of financially independent people in Longmont, Colorado, which would be a fabulous place to move to. But I'm a little bit further away. I, I hate driving, so <laughs> I don't go to those things. Gotcha. And yeah, I think it's even a struggle for people who retire at a more traditional age. So I think that's always something that people who retire kind of struggle with. Yeah, absolutely. The big why. What am I doing? Yeah. But you have enough projects and operations to kind of (laughs) keep. Yeah, absolutely. I'm never bored. Yeah. So have you ever thought about returning to work? If so, you know, what would that be like? During the pandemic, I seriously considered going back to work just because it was kind of going a little crazy. And I felt the world was falling apart and I was living a life of luxury. So I applied to a bunch of places and I did get a couple of job offers. But in the end, I decided not to take them because I just really liked not working. So... (laughs) It's very comforting that I could find a job if I really wanted to, but... I don't know. It wasn't the time for me. Were the kind of roles you were pursuing, were they like law related? Yeah, they were all law and they were all nonprofits. Oh, okay. So much less pay, but something that seemed a little bit more up my alley. Gotcha. And um, another thing I've noticed that you were talking about real estate and you seem to be like, I know you used to be very anti-real estate. Now you're softening on that view. So how has that evolved? Um, So it's, my boyfriend, 
he owns property and he's very good at it. So and I've seen it. Gotcha. You know, so you've seen well. you've seen the benefits. Yes. So. And I have a friend, Deanna McIntyre, she's pretty big in this community too, about medium term rentals. And I've seen how amazingly successful she's been. So, you know, it's part of the the comparison is the three of joy thing. Like, oh well, you know, I could probably do that too. And yeah, I could I can make that much money if I want, that kind of thing. So I'm definitely softening, but I still haven't but bit the bullet and haven't done anything with that. And I don't think I will anytime soon, just because I love how my life is structured right now so much. And I don't really want to add more quote unquote work on top of that and stress. And I mean, my returns have been so good the last decade plus in the market that I'm hesitant to like switch horses mid-race. Yeah. Does, um, as a part of your apprehension about like how it's not really passive, like real estate is work. Yeah. 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 It seems to me like anyone with even one rental, like it becomes a job. Yeah. My boyfriend has six. And so I help him a lot with like the scheduling and stuff and I don't mind it at all. I think it's a great break. I just don't know if I want to do more of that. Yeah. I, I, I don't blame you. So Another thing I wanted to ask you about, so you talk a lot about the concept of enough, like your book is called Operation Enough. So what do you think, like, why do you think people struggle with that so much? Like you'll see at all income levels, people kind of struggle with this concept of enough. Like you'll see billionaires still taking all kinds of crazy risks and things. Uh, You know, what is the concept of enough and why do you think people struggle with that so much? I think about this a lot, honestly, because my sister is in a similar boat. She she has more money than I do, but she doesn't want to stop working because she's afraid that she won't have enough money. Um, so I think it's a very common thing. I think it's just like, how do you know how much is enough if you're going to get sick or if you're going to need it for some big, big expense or something? You know, it just, it's like, it kind of feels like if you have the mindset of scarcity versus abundance that it's never going to feel like enough. Whereas if you have the mindset that things will be okay in the end, then I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I kind of lost my train of thought there. No, I mean, it sounds like you're saying you think for a lot of people, it's about fear. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's about fear. It's about not knowing what you need. Because I think most people, when they do their finances, they're kind of in the dark. They pay the bills. They don't have a big overall picture of like their net worth or like how much money is coming in or going out every month. So when you have, it's kind of nebulous like that. You don't have a specific number, but when you start writing it down, when you start keeping track, when you start charting it, then you kind of have a better idea of what you need, need to know is enough. Yeah. And I think uh, budgeting definitely helps. And I most people don't budget. And when you start to really break down a budget and evaluating it, I think it's kind of shocking the amount of money that you discover you're wasting. Oh, absolutely. So I know that you're big in the travel. So for most people, when they go traveling, they're spending vast sums of money. Like it's easy to go on some trip and spend like three grand or five grand. Like how do you, in your traveling because that's your main interest. How do you avoid spending that kind of money? Oh man, there are so many hacks you can do. When I I first retired, I did a lot of house sitting. So I'd travel all over the world and just have no hotel costs basically. Um, And and, I remember like needing to go to a wedding in LA. And instead of booking a hotel, I went online and I looked for a house sit and I found one for 10 days the time period of the wedding and she let me use her car to actually go to the wedding. So it was a very 
I mean, very cheap trip. I just paid for my wedding present and the flight, you know? So it's amazing. After that, there's like, do there's something called English House in Spain and Germany where you can go and spend a week and practice and just talk to people who are trying to learn English and they give you free accommodations and free food. What else can you do? Um, I just did a, a whole bunch of credit card hacking. Actually, my boyfriend just did a bunch of credit card hacking and he told me about it and I, I wrote about it a little bit. You can just, you know, gather all these points and then get basically free trips. Um, we just signed up for, believe it or not, a timeshare presentation. Oh, no. <laughs> You've read it. Wait a minute. You you wrote in your book how timeshares yeah, are. There's absolutely no way that I will never, I will ever <laughs> buy it. But the deal was a really good deal to go and sit for two hours. I did. I read a lot of reviews on it. I read Nerd Rollett's review and apparently it's a very good deal if you can say no. And I, I'm pretty confident in my abilities to say no. So, and I, I really wanted to write about it. So <laughs> that's another reason we're going. <laughs> I attended a time period presentation so you don't have to kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, they try to wear you down though. You have to stay strong. Yeah, I'm pretty confident. I don't know. I've never been pressured into, into buying something I didn't want. And I know for sure I don't want a timeshare. So. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how that happens. I mean, everyone thinks that they're immune to it, right? That's why it works. But I'm very curious to see. I'm very excited about it, actually. So you don't predict a blog post saying, hey, I just got a timeshare. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I think I'd be way too embarrassed. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> So you also, I thought this was interesting. You wrote a list of eight things people should never buy. You wrote about one of the most timeshares. <laughs> Get rich quick schemes, multi-level marketing, diamond engagement ring, cigarette, soda, lottery tickets, and late fees. So you don't have to talk about all of them, but like what are, why are some of those things you should never buy? Well, late fees is my the one that makes me cringe the most just because it's the exact same thing you're paying for. You're just paying for it late, you know, so you're paying more for the product. Soda, it's just terrible for you. I probably drink too much alcohol, but I know alcohol was one of the things I wrote in my book that like you can, that's one of your, if you, that's one of the things if you want to do kind of thing, like figure out what you want to do and or what makes you happy and do those things. So maybe if soda makes you happy, you can do soda. I don't know. That doesn't, I don't, I don't really like that explanation, but <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, it sounds like they all just add up to things that are basically vices. They're not particularly good for use. They're probably a waste of money. Yeah, but I mean, I, I wanted to emphasize, maybe I didn't do that a good job, job in the book, that you know, you're allowed to have these indulgences. You're just not allowed to have all the indulgences. Oh, okay. Okay, that's a good perspective. So you can pick, you got to pick your vice is what you're exactly, saying. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay. And you're also a pretty avid reader. So you're always you're talking about books you've read. Um, what are some of the best books you've read that you would recommend to people? Oh man, okay. So investment books, I think we talked about a little bit already. Bogleheads, Bogleheads Guide to Investing, Random Walk Down Wall Street, A Simple Path to Wealth. I think are the three best investment books. I agree. I always recommend Jail Collins' book whenever someone who knows nothing about investing or finance and like I'm on a book about it. I always say Jail Collins. That's the Absolutely. first place you go. Yeah, he's got a few new books out too. Um, he wrote about investing in real estate. He's also kind of anti-real estate. So he had an interesting book on why he doesn't think it's necessarily the best thing. Um, mm -hmm. And then he has a book called Pathfinders about you know different people's stories on early retirement. 
which I thought was kind of interesting. So if you're like in the, on that journey, you know, it's a good book. I also really like like self-help books. So I read a ton of those. I'm trying to just think off the top of my head, like what is it called? Mark Manson's book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which I thought was really good. I'm blanking on other names. Oh, I saw you wrote about Feeling Good. I really like that book. I read oh, that. yeah. Feeling Good was great. It's uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. I used to suffer from pretty severe depression. And that book helped me tremendously. I completely rewired my brain thanks to that book. It was life-changing. I highly recommend it if you're depressed or even if just going through a bad time. It's just, it's helpful to reframe your thoughts and reframe the way you think and the words in your head. Yeah, it's very helpful to realize that your thoughts are kind of irrational. Absolutely. You know, when you take a step back and you actually like write these things down and say them out loud, things you're worried about, it's all very irrational. And when you can take a step back and say like, well, is that a logical point of view? And it isn't really. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing logical really about our thoughts. It's just feelings and it's habits. It's synapses. It's not, it's not truth. It's just what we think in the moment based on our feelings and our surroundings, you know? We're all telling stories to ourselves and none of the stories are real. We Absolutely. Ourselves that. Absolutely. So what would your, um, you know, before we wrap up, like, what is your major advice for someone thinking about pursuing early retirement? What would you say to them? I would say it's absolutely worth it. As great as everyone, as it sounds <laughs> like I love networking. I love my life. I love being able to travel all the time and pursue my hobbies and I can't imagine giving all of this up for stuff or like a nicer car or just the random lattes every day, or it just, it's your freedom is so much worth, worth so much more than stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's good advice. And uh, is there anything else you wanted to to add? What are the best ways to um, read your content, learn about you? Um, So I have a blog that I write on sporadically, very sporadically, but I try not to bother people unless I have something interesting to say. So it's thepowerofthrift.com. I also have a book, like you mentioned, Operation Enough, which I think it's a good, you know, if you're looking to retirement, it's just a good supplement to kind of another way to get there. Awesome. Well, um, thank you for coming on today and thank you for your time. Yeah, this is really fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.